Uh, I'm Oliver James. I'm chartered clinical psychologist and psychotherapist registered at the Bowlby Centre. I nowadays primarily write books and I've written quite a number of books in the last um, 10 years. I also do some journalism and broadcasting and I suppose I uh, find myself deeply, deeply disaffected with the way in which matters have developed since the credit crunch. The first sort of book that I became aware of that you wrote was, was Affluenza and, and in that book you describe uh, affluenza or uh, a consumerism as a, as a modern day virus. Could you give us a sense of what the symptoms of that virus are? Placing too high a value on money, possessions, appearances, including keeping up with the Joneses as well as physical, and fame. Any of those places you at greater risk of the commonest emotional distress disorders, depression, anxiety, personality disorders like me, 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 narcissism, and substance abuse. People who have placed too high a value on money, possessions, appearances, or fame are more at risk of suffering the commonest emotional problems that people have. In affluenza, I, I explored how this was working out in eight nations, obviously the UK, but then New Zealand, Australia, Singapore, Shanghai, Moscow, Copenhagen, and New York. And I used anecdotal stories to illustrate the scientific evidence. The most important scientific fact comes from the World Health Organization International Survey of Mental Illness, which shows that the countries which are English-speaking the, the America, in particular in that survey, America and New Zealand, but if you also include Canada, Australia and the UK, on average, average across those five nations, you get an average of 23% of the population having suffered a mental illness in the last 12 months, compared with in mainland Western Europe, the six nations studied in that, which are the, the, the six big ones, France, Italy, Germany, and so on. The average there is 11.5%. And the explanation that I offered for that, the primary reason, was that we are more materialistic, or what I call the affluenza virus. And the reason we're more materialistic is because of our former political economy. So since 1979 in this country, 1980 in America, we have had free market economics, or what I would call selfish capitalism uh, and the selfish capitalism jacks up levels of materialism and it follows that if greater materialism causes greater levels of mental illness if you increase the materialism of a population you would expect there to be an increase in the amount of mental illness in that population there are also cross-national studies that show that mainland western european nations are less materialistic than english-speaking ones so it's not surprising that we're more mentally ill than men in Western Europe. And in fact, for many years this has been going on, so for around about 50 years, America spent four times more per capita on advertising to its population than mainland Western Europe. In the UK and in the other English-speaking nations, it's twice as much per capita. And of course, if you have a lot of advertising and a lot of 
uh, that in itself is 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 popularized in madmen is is advertising's purpose is to try to persuade you that you need something that you don't actually need it's a want it's a confected want so the affluenza stricken selfish capitalist society is all about generating false needs and getting people to conflate what they really need with what they want uh, or at least what the advertisers want them to want one of <clears throat> one of the things that you that you recommend in uh, in the selfish capitalist is that people need to increase the strength of their emotional immune systems uh, in the in that context what does that what does that process look like do you think well at the heart of it is is shift away from extrinsic motives and goals towards intrinsic. So extrinsic means doing things to please other people and for rewards. And of course that can start in early childhood and frequently does, even starts in in early infancy. So you have what I would call essentially selfish capitalist methods for shutting babies up, like Gina Ford, uh, where you leave babies to cry, um, onwards through into the education system. But you, but you have love conditional on performance in the selfish capitalist system. But of course, this also happens in the Asians, as we saw yesterday. <laughs> the Asians are very, very... Uh, put an awful lot of pressure on their children from a very young age to do well academically, so it's not exclusive to selfish capitalism. But uh, in, increasingly, in contrast to 30 years ago, the education system is a sort of uh, battery farm for creating extrinsic motivation. You don't really care about your homework so long as you tick the boxes. Uh, the exam systems have become similarly box-ticking, uh, quite extraordinarily if you, and if you have children, but O-levels and A-levels have become a ridiculous exercise in just finding out what the examiners want and giving it to them. Whatever to do with scholarship, learning, knowledge, just about going through hoops. Um, and an extrinsic motivation, of course, in the workplace, which is I wrote a book recently about office politics a year ago, it came out, which was arguing that because we now have a service sector uh, based economy, thanks to Thatcherism having destroyed our manufacturing base, um, really office politics becomes critical. Your boss, this is no objective metric for measuring your performance. It's really all about the subjective evaluation of your boss. Um, so I think in terms of vaccines against the materialistic affluenza virus, um, the fundamental principle is, is you need to rediscover the intrinsic and you know, accentuate the intrinsic and eliminate the extrinsic. The intrinsic being things that actually interest you. Uh, things that give you what's known as flow. In other words, the, the, the feeling, if you look at your small children and they're playing, they're completely lost in that world. They're completely absorbed by it. As adults, we frequently, and, and, and really from all too young an age, 
we, we're not in that state. We're, we're basically in a state of worrying about whether we're pleasing other people, whether we achieve things in order to get our reward. You wrote recently about the, an idea called love bombing, of the idea that our children have become so deprived, as I understand it, of our attention uh, that actually we should um, sort of give them a day where we just shower them with it on a regular basis. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about that? And also, I'm <clears throat> because transition is is something which is designed as a community wide response. Whether you could imagine something like that working on a community scale, and if so, what it might look like. Well, the idea of love bombing um, is is very simple. It's it's and it's something that really people of any educational level can do, uh, and it's just simply the idea that uh, there's. It works with any kind of child. You don't. Your child doesn't even have to have problems, although all children do, of course, have some problems. Um, but it works pretty well for things like ADHD or uh, even somebody. It was one case described in the book of autism. And what the, what it is is you you. It's essentially giving your child an intense, condensed experience of feeling in control and a feeling love. And uh, it doesn't, the book itself doesn't really get into the question of why children might need this, although it does explore the causes in the individual cases, and it's essentially done through case histories, it's illustrated. Um, but the method itself, it consists, it's, it's not really the same thing as quality time, so people sometimes confuse it with that. What you do is you say to your child, your three to early puberty child, you say, would you like to have a bit of time away with me? This might involve going away for a night or two, if you can go to a and b or something, or it might involve just getting the house to yourself and getting rid of the family, or perhaps swapping with your grandparents, getting them to look after the family and you go to their house. Any practical arrangement you can fix up to get you alone with the child would you like a bit of time away with me? Uh, you will decide what we do. It'll be completely up to you and you can do anything you like um, within reason. Um, obviously, we think we can't afford or off the agenda, but uh, anything within reason. So it's not a hard sell to most children. And you then get set about planning it. Now, obviously, a proportion of children will say, well, uh, we'll go to the sweet shop and buy all the sweets in the shop. But actually, that for some, interestingly, that very rarely is where the children start. If there's a lot of antagonism between the parent and the child, I mean, I have come across one case out of thousands where the child did actually just use it as a way of completely, um, you know, maliciously upsetting the parent. So I think the parent must have, I assume that this was something pretty ghastly been going on between the parent and the child. But this is the only example I know of. In, in every other case I've come across, the, the child very quickly gets the hang. You know, it's, it's really, really appeals a lot to them to have the, ex the, ex the exclusive attention of, it's nearly always the mother, to be honest. Um, then uh, when you, you know, if you say you go away for a night, you go away and what seems to to happen is that the parent is forced to check themselves from trying to control 
to a child and, and cause to check with themselves from their, their usual pattern of relating. Because most of us get sucked into a pattern of, have you done this? Have you done that? Yada, yada, yada. Uh, you know, we, it's not how we want to be as parents, but partly because of the system requires us to regulate our children in order to get them to do their homework, in order to, in order to make them extrinsic. Um, love bombing it's rather surprises. It surprised me. I first did it actually for a TV series. Um, and I was amazed at the results. I did a sort of modified version of it. And uh, you go away and you, you just hang out with the child and you have to, you're forced to stop yourself from telling them what to do. They're in charge. You tell them you love them, whatever they say. It's kind of unconditional love. And it sounds like a prescription for, you know, catastrophe, especially if your child is very needy, which often they are. Um, but interestingly, it has the opposite effect of the one you might expect. So they stop worrying, being so interested in screen time. If they want to spend hours watching telly, you just sit and watch it with them. But eventually they do get fed up with that and they, they do want to relate to you. They want to be with you. They want to be cuddled by you, you sleep in the same bed as them. And at the end of it, you then have a half hour top up and you give it a name. They give it a name, though. It's important they choose the name. They, they call it mama time or whatever they call it. Um, and um, love time or whatever. They give it a name. And you then can institutionalize it as a period when the two of you hang out together and they're in charge. And having established the principle, they, they, they very quickly like that idea of a, of a half an hour brief time. Perhaps it just involves watching an episode of The Simpsons. Uh, my, my son is quite happy that if I sit and watch it with him, it's so different for him than from watching it on his own. And, um, very surprising changes seem to take place. Uh, the child, I think it resets their cortisol system, it resets their emotional thermostat. But also I think it does the same for the parent in relation to the child. And the parent seems to then be able to, comes back home and suddenly notices that they've got into this pattern of trying to control the child and of, and of forgetting to express affection. And, uh, and starts to express affection and, and to stop just trying to control them all the time. And so a much more benign cycle is started. And I, I have thousands of examples of this. It's very gratifying to see. And could you imagine that same principle being extended beyond the family? Could you love bomb a community, do you think? Well, I think when it comes to communities, the idea that a that the, the people who are in charge, who are in charge of being, in a sense, making us extrinsically motivated, so trying to persuade us to park our cars in certain places, uh, trying to persuade you know, trying to try to, you could say, just the rule of law. Um, but I would put it more in terms of democracy. That the, the what has happened in our in the selfish capitalist world, particularly, but also because of globalization and the and the corporate the extent to which corporations have really now taken over. Um, there is a huge problem of control that 
the people are not in control, a ruling, a tiny ruling elite who, who loot corporations and loot the taxpayers um, are in control. And personally, I think it's very unlikely that uh, this ruling elite are going to give these things up very easily. But what I what I what I predict is. Um, and I think it's very dangerous to predict these things, but I personally think the present situation is unsustainable, not only ecologically, and obviously the quicker, the sooner we, East Anglia goes underwater or something really big like that happens, the better. But unfortunately, it's not going to happen probably for some time, especially because of fracking. It looked like the running out of oil had run out, which it, we were told peak oil, even OPEC told us that peak oil had happened. Uh, sometime in the last decade. Uh, unfortunately, that's not the case because of fracking. So we're going to basically fry because, uh, as George Monbiot pointed out, um, we're stuffed. It's, it's, the oil's going to keep coming, or the gas. And uh, the ecological problem is going to get worse, but it's, it's not going to happen as quick. I mean, it might happen quickly, but it's probably not going to happen in such a way that people really change their behavior. So I think that what what is unsustainable is is selfish capitalism. I think neoliberalism has been completely disproved as a indeed neoclassical economics has been disproved, yet it is still being uh, just as genes have been shown by the Human Genome Project to be unimportant, but nobody's paying any attention to this. The Today program keeps on insignificant they're very significant. But I, I think can't go on indefinitely. I think there's a point at which a population, we've seen it in the Soviet Union, we saw the Soviet Union just disappear up in smoke uh, without hardly anyone predicting that. Um, we've seen the Arab Springs happening, and we all sit around, oh, isn't it wonderful? Arabs getting democracy. Nobody's really in the media. Nobody is pointing out that we don't have democracy, and that our situation, you know, apart, you know, Russell Brand stood up and said it, and look at the reaction he got. He got a strong positive reaction from the population, and then a load of censorious, patronising dribble from the commentary, commentator, commentaria, um, and uh, I honestly would question whether the present situation is sustainable and I think there's a very significant possibility that at some point, and it's impossible to predict how or when, uh, I think at some point there will just be an uprising, so to speak. But I don't think it'll be a, I, I certainly hope it isn't a violent revolution, but I think there'll be a downing of tools and a saying we've had enough of this, we're just not putting up with it anymore. <clears throat> One of the things that's been very interesting in terms of that recently um, has been the whole um, the sort of beginning of a of a kickback against Amazon, you know, in terms of a company that 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 has that builds on those extrinsic values, and uh, the recent Panorama program, and so on and so on. What's your sense of of how a company, what a company like that, although it just seems very quick and very simple, and one click and you're done, and all that kind of thing, what does a company like Amazon do to us? Well, I mean, I think Amazon is. I mean, I remember when the internet started, I remember saying, well, this is just going to be a commercial thing. 
everyone said it's going to be so exciting, it's going to liberate us. Well, actually, to some extent it has. I mean, as, as a scholar, it's fantastic to be able to go to Google Scholar and, and find scientific papers. There have, of course, there have been huge benefits from the internet. Um, maps, <laughs> um, all sorts of things. But there's obviously something like Amazon. It, the reason Amazon is a problem is purely because of the failure, the way that corporations have managed to get into the have managed to, to destroy national national identity and the global globalization of corporations. So um, the problem with Amazon is not the biz, is not the principle of being able to click on something and get you know get things delivered. In, in ecologically, the fact, you know the fact that superstores are now delivering supermarkets are delivering food actually that saves journeys petrol saves quite a lot of petrol potentially it's not a bad model actually to have things delivered um you know the, the journey to the bookshop i mean obviously people like me are going to be um slightly weepy about the loss of bookshops uh, but i think if the amazon platform was better developed you it could be like a bookshop uh the problem isn't with the model in and of itself of a, of a, of a platform on, on an internet site. Uh, the problem, of course, is, is the way the tax system works and also the monopolistic dangers. And they are very considerable in the case of Amazon. As, um, I didn't see the Panorama program, so I don't know exactly what it was talking about. It was probably talking about the tax, uh, the way they don't pay tax, and um, presumably, and, and also the, the potential for them to destroy I mean, to ultimately control what it is we see and, you know, what DVDs we see and what books we read. Uh, that presumably is the ultimate risk. No, well, it, it, it was about the working conditions within the factories and the degrees of sort of psychological stress that they put workers under. Oh, I didn't know about that. Uh-huh. Um, well, I do, funnily enough, I, I did... I managed to make contact with the employee at Amazon who said it was a terrifying organization. Um, but um, I didn't know about that aspect of it. Yeah, I mean, interesting. I didn't know that. Um, I, I'm, I mean, that's awful. Uh, it doesn't surprise me in the least. Um, but what I'm more concerned about is the monopolistic risk. That, that, you know, it could ultimately be the allowed to carry it will eventually what we read you know you know there'll be books that you can't get hold of anymore because they're not on Amazon um, because there won't be any bookshops. How how is it going to be done? How is how is how are corporations going to be controlled? The only way ultimately it's going to be done is if is if you have a meeting of minds amongst other corporations in the world. And that's actually not going to be easy to see how that's going to come about because those because the politics because of the revolt as we saw with Leveson, there really is a revolving door between within within the ruling elite. They move between each other. Politicians move in and out of business. The businessmen move in and out of politics. So politics has no longer become the mechanism by which these problems are going to be dealt with. So again, you come back to at what point does it become apparent to the population that this 
system doesn't work for them and and in what and in what way will they apprehend it all i can say is that for the point of which people were not going to put up with it what are we going to be paid too little and it's going to be too obvious that i mean if you if you've got the daily mail baying against the amount the bankers are paid paid that must tell you something and i mean i suppose one of the things you know you mentioned google and uh, and Amazon and I suppose the way the way in which now the the um, the degree to which that or a Tesco club card sort of knows more about us than probably our partners do in terms of what we do on a daily basis and uh, the degree to which it enables advertising targeted to you to be popping up in your email every time you open your email i mean with the, the, there's a there's an extrinsic values machine that's almost able to read our mind these days uh, how does uh, how important is it that we somehow sort of create space in our life where those things can't reach to a certain extent it doesn't really matter whether my wife knows that i've bought this or that on amazon or in the kind of way a lot of the information i think you'd need to be you don't need to get carried away here. I mean, the amount of information of corporations, the main, you know, the most alarming purpose of that information service is partly you have to advertise to us so we get an increasingly limited view of the world because our, when, we, when, we, when you go for, go for information on Google, it gives you, it uses your past history to uh control the search terms so so if you're very right wing and live in america you'll only get right wing live in america information if you're left wing and live in england you get left wing in england information so you get a kind of rather limited worldview uh that's that's a worry but more more irritating and practical is is the differential pricing so Although they can't actually tell your IP address, they that through your past searches, they can, they pretty much know who you are, as you say, and and using that, that you get differential pricing. So the paper saying there is no such thing as airfare. You, it's an airfare. As an aeroplane, a fare for an aeroplane journey. Um, if, if, when I, when I, if I, if I Google for an airfare on my computer now, I would be offered a different price than somebody who lives in um, Brixton, who's never tried to get an airfare before, or who's, uh, you know, only able to afford very cheap ones. And whose whose you know, expenditure and consumption pattern shows that they're a low-income person. Um, they will get offered a lower effort. Uh, now you could say that's democratic, <laughs> but I would say it's very very startlingly. Uh, it's not how it should work at all. Um, and um, I think, but I think more. And I think obviously the Edward Snowden, you know, what that kind of snooping stuff is also potentially worrying. And certainly, the, you know, in some respects, we are living in, in, in Oceania, you know, and the Big Brother has come to pass in the sense of 
talking to you on a computer that contains a, a camera and if GCHQ want to watch what I'm doing at any one moment in the day, it's very easy for them to do that. Um, you know, if for some reason they wanted to, they'd be able to switch on my camera and watch me uh, and hear what I'm saying and doing. Um, you know, that is spooky and in the wrong hands, you know, I think, I, but I think one doesn't want to get carried away. In that I, don't, I think GCHQ is unlikely to effective um, campaign to overthrow the government uh, or to overthrow the present really some way to, to organize say, a mass period of, of civil unrest. Um, uh, but then they will start doing that. They'll start trying to sabotage what I'm doing. And that is that is very concerning. Uh, or perhaps if, if there is a period of civil unrest, and perhaps what I predict will happen, that you get a spring and spring type mass uprising. There is always a risk that you end up with a military dictatorship run by Nat Rothschild. And if you do get any kind of Kind of, any kind of fast uprising, uh, and they got in control of GCHQ over RCT. But I think that's a fairly improbable scenario. Um, but still, you know, the means by which Oceania could come about is, is, is now all there, it's all sitting waiting to happen in a sense, if you want to get paranoid about it. One of the one of the things that I've asked everybody we've spoken to this month is is given your 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 analysis of things. What 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 are you buying for people this Christmas? Well, uh, hopefully very very little. I mean, um, my take on Christmas, I offered it on you and yours. I mean, my argument is, if you've got children, is to, is to tell everybody that you know, first of all talk to your children about something that. that is that they're actually going to still want in three months' time um, after Christmas, uh, and then it'll so it'll probably be a, a, a fairly high-end, expensive item, and then just ask everybody to contribute to it. And I mean, whether it's an iPad or a bicycle or whatever it is, uh, keep it simple. Um, obviously, if you've got under five-year-olds or small children. In a way, all the more important because that pile of plastic and paper that you end up with on Christmas morning or on birthday mornings is just such a nightmare. It's so depressing for everyone, including the child. So, uh, you know, that's what I suggest as my TikTok tip for avoiding that happening. And indeed, we have agreed in the our family we are doing a ballot. We did a ballot and. Each person to buy one present is going to be given one present by the group, so to speak. Um, you know, so I, I can't remember who I'm giving my present to, but I can't remember who's giving me my present. But uh, you know, only one present is, is is all I'm going to get or give within the group of people who I'll be who I'll be together with on on, on Christmas Day. Um, 
that's that's a way to control it. Uh, I mean, you know, I think for children, of course, it's. You know, I think Christmas is for children, really, um, and obviously it's for adults in the sense that you all get together and there's a, there is a sense of community. Um, although a lot of it's quite tense and bad tempered, but then that's families for you. Um, uh, but I, I mean, it doesn't have to be like that, and um, and for many families it isn't, and and for the adults. But uh, but I think it's primarily for children. Christmas, it's it's a, it, it does have a sort of wow factor, and it is a magical moment potentially. And I think you know, I don't I don't find it, a, a society that had a healthier relationship with stuff. What would that look like? Because at the moment, we, it seems to be like so sort of engineered to sort of get us to buy stuff that most of which ends up in the bin within within a few weeks. What would a healthier relationship, a society with a healthier relationship, look like? Simple. It's it's um, it's just getting that distinction between needs and wants. Uh, so in a society where you uh, people people. If everybody was saying, do I need this or do I just want it? Is it a confected want or do I really need this? Um, our homes would you know, rapidly be, we'd rapidly get rid of a lot of the things that we have in our homes. A lot of it, of course, it's all the stuff we store. Um, and we would... Um, I think we would obviously those of us who live in the countryside would have vegetable patches and chicken and so on. Um, and these, you know, we, we see the extent to which, I mean, funnily enough, my grandfather was very keen on Henry George. And I think that ideas like Henry George will come back. Obviously, with as the ecological problems mount, they'll come. It will come back. They'll become back faster and faster. So this this fiasco, whereby the combination of the EU and Mrs. Thatcher destroyed our agricultural base. Well, it's quite funny to suddenly find that people can actually make money out of out of breeding sheep. <laughs> you know that. Um, the, the sort of random, the random process of global economy suddenly mean that actually it makes sense to, instead of it being, instead of it just being about commodities, the price of of, of lamb as an as a commodity uh, being the issue, it actually becomes, you know, one of the benefits of, of the, the ecological disaster of this coming towards us is going to be that we're going to have to be forced to think about need rather than want and we're going to have to think very carefully i mean i guess also i hope that our educated children at least i mean the the, the half of the population or whatever who get educated quite they do seem to get better educated in some respects than we were in that they seem to do science looking like children they seem to have to acquire a knowledge of science that i didn't and also knowledge of how computers work, including programming, which is going to become very, very important when, you know, when when there's a very finite amount of 
raw materials and when your DVD breaks down, you're going to need to know how to repair it. And that would be a fantastic thing when, when we actually get back to a system where the corporations deliberately build in obsolescence. Uh, and you'll have, I, I wouldn't be surprised if you don't have a very successful global corporation actually based on enabling people to repair their or, to, or, or repairing for them their existing technology. Because at the moment, it's much, the, the shops will just say, yeah, it'll be cheaper for you to throw it away.